0: amen let's start in Ephesians chapter 1 tonight Ephesians chapter 1 Paul gives us an account of a prayer that he's impressed or inspired by the Holy Ghost to pray and the fact that the Holy Ghost saved us a, a record of it makes this a, a doubly important or a doubly uh, critical prayer in my uh, estimation let's start in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15 Paul, writing by the Holy Ghost, said, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now when he said he ceased not to give thanks for them, uh, and making mention of them in his prayers, that's an indication to us that he prayed this over and over and over again. So that must be okay for us to pray it over and over and over again. Here's his prayer. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding, some translations say the eyes of your spirit, being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Three things he he prays for and asks God for on behalf of the Ephesians. That they would know what is the hope of his calling. In other words, God's individual plan for their lives. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Here's the second thing. He's praying that we would know who we are in Christ and what belongs to us. Verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. The third thing he prays is that we would know what is the power that dwells in us as believers. Now notice he's not praying that God would give us extra power. The power, the, uh, the power of God is already resident inside of He's praying that we would know the exceeding greatness of that power so that we would know how to use it. Now, he describes that power in verse 20. This power is what he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand. Most of the time, people look at the raising of the dead where it talks about God raised Jesus from the dead. They look at that just from a physical standpoint. This is not talking about the physical resurrection. This is talking about when Jesus was made sin for us you remember on the cross jesus said it's finished talking about the uh, the law being fulfilled but then jesus spent three days in the belly of the earth the heart of the earth the bible tells us now i know it's difficult for some people to accept but jesus had to die spiritually if he died as your substitute. Because the Bible says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. That's spiritual death. That's exactly what God told Adam Adam would happen if he disobeyed him and ate of the forbidden fruit in the garden. He said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. We can't be talking about physical death because Adam didn't die for 930 years. Well, what death is he talking about then? He's talking about spiritual death. Spiritual death is defined as separation from God. So when Jesus died in our place... He died our death. What death would we have to pay without the redeeming work of Jesus? We wouldn't die as Old Testament saints. We wouldn't die as anyone that was righteous. We would die as those, we would die the death of the spiritually dead. So when the Bible talks about God raising Jesus from the dead, it has to be talking about that the Spirit of God came back upon Jesus. And for death, in place of death, the life of God came within him. Here it talks about two parallel events. It talks about how this power, this resurrection power was wrought in Christ when God raised him from the dead. Again, let talking about spiritual death, from spiritual death to eternal life. The Bible says Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren. Well, how was he the firstborn? He was the firstborn from spiritual death into eternal life. So it says that power raised Christ from the dead And here's the second thing it did, that power set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. That tells us where that place is, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and has put all things under his feet. It's a place of authority, folks, has put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now skip with me or go with me to chapter 2 because he's not finished talking about this very thing. In chapter 2 he identifies, chapter 1 he identifies the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead and set him in his own right hand in heavenly places. Chapter 2 tells us what he did for us. Notice in verse 1, And you hath he quickened, which were dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, it's saying when Jesus was born again, so were we. Now that wasn't certainly wasn't the time that we received it, because we hadn't been born yet, born physically into the earth yet. But the new birth was obtained by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And you, hath he quickened who were dead in and trespasses and sins. Skip down with me to verse six, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, folks, since the Bible tells us two things that happened. By the power of God on behalf of Jesus, God raised him from the dead, raised him from spiritual death to eternal life, first and foremost. Second, it set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. The resurrection power of God not only gave new life to Jesus, but also gave him a seat at the Father's right hand, a place of authority. Again, the description is far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. Now the Bible says in chapter 2 that the very same two things happened for us when we were born again. He has raised us up together. He's quickened us rather from death, spiritual death unto eternal life. I think a lot of the church is waiting waiting until we get to heaven to experience eternal life. But the Bible says we have that now. And the Bible tells us that same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places, that resurrection power has done the same thing for us. And you hath he quickened, which were dead in trespasses and sins, again verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in him. So if God raised Jesus from the dead and set him in his own right hand, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in that, which is to come and gave him to be the head over the church and put all things under his feet. Well, since we're the body of Christ, that means all things specifically, the works of the devil are under our feet. They're not just under Jesus feet. The feet are in the body, not in the head. They're under our feet. Now, folks, If there's one thing that we can identify about this prayer, again, that was given by the Holy Ghost for Paul to pray and then then a record was saved so we would know about it, that makes this prayer pretty important in my eyes. I don't know about you, but this is one of the most important prayers that we could ever pray because it brings us revelation about who we are and where we are with God. He's raised us up together just like he raised Jesus up together. He's brought us eternal life or quickened us, made us alive from spiritual death, and then set us in that place of authority. Now, if you'll recall over in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the Bible tells us that after God created the earth and everything that was in the earth, now it's on day 6 and he's... Uh, just about to create man the purpose for the earth that he had already created genesis 126 says and god said let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness an exact duplicate in kind in other words god made us just like himself now i know there's a lot of things that we'll never understand about that but the bible says that we have been made in the image and likeness of god He didn't create anything else to be in his image or his class of being. But he made us an exact duplicate in kind. And before Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, man was exactly like God. He didn't have God's omnipotence, of course. He didn't have some of the the miraculous characteristics of God. But nevertheless, he he was made in God's image. He was an exact duplicate Duplicate in kind. Just as much as God was a spirit being, is a spirit being, man was created as a spirit being. Man's the only thing that God created that can fellowship with him as an equal. And again, when I talk about being equal with God, I'm not talking about equal in power. I mean equal in the manner in which we were created. So he said, it says, let, uh, it, God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. And let them have authority over all the work of our hands. The only identified reason, the only, and there may be other things as well, but the only thing that's specifically identified as why God made man was to give him authority in the earth. And man had absolute and ultimate authority on the earth before the fall. God told Adam and Eve, dress and keep the garden. That means guard and protect it. When God gave man authority on the earth, he's in effect saying to Adam, if something goes wrong down here, don't call me. You take care of it. If the cow gets in the the pole beans, don't call me to fix the situation. You do something about it. And that is the one specific reason that the Bible identifies that God made man. Now I know that a lot of times people will kind of romanticize certain things. Or imagine certain things, and it makes a good story many times. But people will say things like God wanted fellowship, God was lonely. Folks, if God can get lonely, he can't be God. God didn't make man because he was lonely, he didn't make man because man would add anything to him. He's God, he's complete. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't enjoy fellowship with man, but it's always for the benefit of man, not for his benefit. Well, if God didn't make man for fellowship, what did he make him for? To give authority over the earth to. That was God's original plan. Now, there were some things that that gummed up the works, obviously. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they didn't lose their standing. They didn't lose the authority that God had given them on the earth but they lost a place of fellowship with him. They lost a place of right standing with him. And as a result of that loss, mankind has been open to the devil's suggestions from that very moment until this moment. Suggestions of unworthiness, of incompleteness, suggestions of lack of power, all of these things are things the devil will try to tell us when he knows full well God gave man authority and God doesn't change his mind I for one just don't believe the devil is strong enough to have taken away everything God gave man now I know the Bible talks about Satan is the God of this world and I remember when Jesus was tempted of the devil in those, after those 40 days in the wilderness the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said, all these things have been delivered unto me, and I'll give them to you if you'll bow down and worship me. So the devil certainly does have authority over governments, but the way he exercises that authority is the same way that he deceived Adam and Eve in the beginning, and that is he has to get mankind in some manner, some way or another, to utilize their authority against themselves or against their own best interests or not utilize their authority at all just sit back while he does his work God created man to have authority well since God never changes and that was God's original will that has to be God's will today too doesn't it in what way can the will of God be changed it's a part of him and he's eternal he said himself I am God I change not So the secret that the devil wants to keep you and I in the dark about is the authority that we still have here on the earth. And that authority was increased and enhanced by the new birth that Jesus brought to us. Man never did lose his authority. What I mean by that is an unsaved man has just as much authority on the earth as somebody that's born again. But of course the one that's born again, the one that's part of God's family, has the privilege of finding out from the word what authority we have. Where the unsaved just go through life operating at their own will and leave God out of the equation altogether. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 beginning in verse 5 and when Jesus was entered into Capernaum there came unto him a centurion beseeching him And saying, Lord, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof. But speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in that selfsame hour. Notice what Jesus marveled at. Jesus marveled at this guy's understanding of authority. And Jesus called that great faith. Now the Bible tells us that Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory to come to the earth. And he came to the earth as a man. In other words, he was born into the earth, even though it was a supernatural occurrence. The Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary. And so the father element of his natural birth was superseded by God himself but he came into the earth not as the son of God now don't get me wrong he was the son of God but he didn't come to operate as the son of God there are 65 times in the four gospels where Jesus identifies himself as either the son of God or the son of man and 60 of those 65 he calls himself the son of man three of the other five are in the same context, the same story. So Jesus identified himself with man to man. Now that didn't keep him from being the son of God. But the Bible very specifically says that Jesus didn't use the power that he had with God in heaven as the son of God before he came to the earth. He laid that, that glory aside. Now in John chapter 17, after the last supper and just before Jesus is betrayed... Jesus asked for that authority back after the work on the cross is finished. He prays to the Father that he would return him to the glory that he had before the worlds began. Well, then whatever he had while he was here on the earth was certainly not that. Mark chapter 5 and verse 26 says, Jesus was given authority here on the earth to execute judgment, specifically destroy the works of the devil because he was the son of man not because he was the son of god well then if jesus was operating we certainly would understand if jesus was operating as the son of god and by that i mean if he was operating with the same power that he had before the worlds were created well then we would certainly understand how he gained authority over sickness and disease because the authority that jesus had over sickness and disease is what the centurion has exhibited faith or exercised faith toward that Jesus marveled at. Jesus knew that Jesus, uh, the centurion knew that Jesus had authority over sickness and disease because of the healing works that he had done that that the centurion had heard about. He knew that that couldn't take place unless somebody had authority over sickness and disease. So he developed his faith in the fact that Jesus had authority. And Jesus marveled at that. He calls that an expression of great faith more so than anything he'd ever found among the Jews. I guess the implication is the Jews, because they had been delivered the word of God, the law and the prophets, they should be the ones operating in a higher level of faith. And we would certainly expect that to be the case if they believed God. They didn't, however. And so when Jesus comes up on somebody that understands authority, and notice what he understood about authority. Authority means the people under you do what they're told. Authority means in this situation that when Jesus speaks the word of healing, sickness has to flee. Sickness has to obey. And Jesus marvels at that and says, I haven't found such great faith, no, not in Israel. Now turn with me also to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 I'll skip around some verses in this chapter for the sake of time. Notice in verse 1, After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whether he himself would come. These seventy are going out in pairs as his advance men. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways, behold... I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes, and salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house you enter, first say, "Peace be to this house." And if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give you or give give to you. For the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. Now notice verse eight. And into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you. Notice the qualification. They have to receive them. Into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things that are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Now he goes on to say, If the, if the city doesn't receive them, then shake the dust of your shoes off against them. In other words, you're not going to be able to do any mighty work you're not going to be able to heal the sick. We see that in Jesus' experience in Mark chapter 6 where he goes to his hometown of Nazareth, preaches to them that he's anointed of God to heal the sick and to do other miracle works that they've heard that he had already performed in Capernaum. But it said the people refused to accept him. And he could there, Mark 6, 5, and he could there do no mighty work. doesn't say that he wouldn't, it says that he couldn't. So the unbelief of the city limited Jesus from operating in the power of God for their benefit. And he could there do no mighty work, save or accept that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks. Vine's uh, expository dictionary of New Testament words says of that word that they were sickly. In other words, people that didn't have too much wrong with them. He was unable. He could there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands on a few folks with minor ailments and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Here, he's showing that the disciples, the 70, are limited by the same things that he was limited by himself. Well, that would make sense. If he delegated authority over sickness and disease to them, what he delegated to them wouldn't be greater than what he had himself. so he tells them and notice the connection between the kingdom of god and healing the sick now do you remember when jesus was asked of his disciples to teach them to pray and he gave what we know of as the lord's prayer it was really the disciples prayer but nevertheless our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name notice the next thing jesus says in that prayer thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven Jesus defines what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven are, where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven. Well, is there any sickness or disease in heaven? There's not a lot that we know or understand about heaven. We're not given a lot of information, but the information we are given shows us that there's not anything in heaven that could hurt or harm mankind. No such thing as sickness in heaven. And that's the reason why God made the earth without sickness and disease here. How would God create sickness or disease when he's the antithesis of sickness itself? Sickness cannot stand in the presence of God because of God's perfection. So there's nothing that can hurt or harm mankind in heaven. And Jesus is telling these 70 to declare that the healing power of God is part of the kingdom of God. Folks, the good news of the gospel of the kingdom is that God wants the same thing for you here and now on the earth that he wants for you in heaven. And that's why Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. To restore man to a place of rightness. Righteousness literally means rightness. Things were right before Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Things were right He had right standing with God. There was never a sense or a hint of guilt or unworthiness where Adam and Eve were concerned. And that's the way God wants it to be. And that's exactly what Jesus came to pay the price for. Now the difference is for us in Adam and Eve before the fall, our bodies have experienced sin prior to the disobedience, breaking the command of God by Adam and Eve. They had no experience with sin whatsoever. So their rightness was an absence of the knowledge of good and evil. Our rightness, that which has been restored to us by the healing work of Jesus, the shedding of his blood, that which belongs to us, is the understanding or the knowledge that through his blood, we've been restored to a place of rightness. No matter what experience our body is involved with or has experienced, no matter the feelings or the sense of unworthiness or any other thing that might be attached to that, irrespective of those physical ailments, irrespective of those physical circumstances, we're given information that we have right standing with God just like Adam and Eve did in the beginning before they fell. So Jesus tells the 70, if the city will receive you, if they'll receive that which you preach. And the only thing the disciples had to preach, they didn't even know Jesus was the Son of God or the the Messiah at that point. The only thing they had to preach is that God had sent this one called Jesus to bring things back in people's lives whereby the works of the devil were destroyed and the will of God could be done in their lives here on the earth just like it is in heaven so the 70 are commanded to heal the sick and to say notice the connection he wants them to understand he wants people to understand not just does he want them to be healed to avoid the sickness and disease that they might be overtaken with he wants them to understand that healing the sick is part of the kingdom of God now if the city receives them what do you think the results are going to be remember why Jesus sent these 70 out he sent them out so that they would go into the cities before he got there so if they go into the cities and these cities receive them and they're able to heal the sick as a result of the faith of the people in the cities can you imagine the easier time jesus is going to have or the multiplied results that jesus is going to get in those cities when the one that these other guys have been telling about finally shows up well how did it work for them skip with me over to verse 19 Or verse 17, we'll come back with that. Verse 17, it said, And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, if you read the preceding verses, the verses that we skipped over, you'll find that there's not one mention made of the devil or breaking the devil's power or anything to that effect. So apparently what's happened is the 70 have gone into these cities and they found people that were possessed with devils or the operation of the devil is working in their lives, in some way or another, and not only did they bring healing power to the people triggered by their own faith, but they were able to cast out devils and exercise authority over the devil to set people free. So they said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. They found that the power of God that was delivered to them went even further than they understand or expected. And Jesus said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notice there's two times the word power is used in verse 19. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. The first word power, these are two different words. The first word for power is the word authority. It's the same word we just read over in Matthew chapter 8 where the centurion says, I'm a man under authority. Here Jesus said, behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power. This word power literally means ability. It's the word we would expect to use when we're talking about the power or the force of God. So he says, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Here's an illustration of the devil and his works. And over all the power the ability of the enemy and nothing shall by any means or in any way hurt you in other words he's saying the authority that I deliver to you he's not giving them more authority he's just describing more fully the authority that's already been given and he says that authority that has been delivered unto them which again is managed or limited by the faith of the cities he says that authority will take care of any of the works of the devil certainly healing works. He identified the healing work of God that was available to them, but he tells them it goes even further. So again, we see God performing that which Genesis 126 says was his initial and, and singular purpose for creating man and putting him hair on the earth, that he might have authority over the works of his hands. Now I want you to turn with me to an Old Testament example Look with me to 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20 tells us the story of Hezekiah, beginning in verse 1. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death, and the prophet Isaiah the son of Amos came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall, talking about Hezekiah. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which was good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass before Isaiah was gone out of the middle court. So this must have happened pretty quickly. He hadn't even left the palace yet. That the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Turn again and tell Hezekiah the captain of my people. Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer and I have seen thy tears. Behold I will heal thee on the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord and I will add unto thy days fifteen years and I will deliver thee in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and I will defend this city for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now some people look at this story and say well see the Bible is full of contradictions here is God saying by the prophet that the man's going to die, that king Hezekiah is going to die and then he turns around immediately thereafter and says i'll give you 15 more years but folks i want you to understand something first of all let me give you a little background in hezekiah the bible says hezekiah i believe it was 25 years old when he took over when his father was killed and he took over as the king of israel and there were a lot of things that he did that were pleasing in god's sight he tore down the all the false gods the idols and the temples and the groves and the different places that people would worship these false idols. And he called for the, the priests to bring copies of the, the law and the prophets to him. And they would read to him at night. And as a result, since he hadn't been taught in any of these things, he found out a lot of things that Israel wasn't doing that God had commanded them to do. First and foremost, had to do with the Passover. So when the, the scripture record was read to him, about the Passover then he immediately began to make plans for Israel to sacrifice and uh, go through the Passover ritual. The problem was it was the wrong time of year. Instead of the first month he was only able to make it happen by the second month and even at that the priests hadn't, hadn't prepared themselves correctly. Remember Israel wasn't serving God, wasn't worshiping God at all at that time and so the priesthood Was simply a group of people that didn't do much of anything whatsoever. So he tried to get things together and he finally did get them together, but not on the schedule that God had commanded. So he simply asked God to pardon them for the things that they were doing wrong and they went ahead with the Passover anyway. And the Bible says that it pleased God to such a degree that he overlooked the things that they hadn't been done. He saw their hearts, at least they're trying to do it right. And the Bible said that he healed the land. healed the people so it shows us that healing was a part of the Passover just like the Bible says and so Hezekiah did several other things to pull down these temples to false idols and again cut down the groves where the people would, would worship these false gods and so forth so when this thing takes place in chapter 20 when Hezekiah says well let me read it rather than just paraphrase it notice again what he said Hezekiah said, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. He's reminding God of the things that he's done that were acts of righteousness. Now here's the question. What was God's will in this situation? See, so many times people look at the things that happen and they attribute it all to God's will. And there are many times where people pray for healing and fail to receive and so they'll wrongly just say well it must not be god's will to heal everybody because we all know of stories and testimonies where god has healed someone, but god must not want the same thing for everybody well we've got a problem with that on several levels first of all the bible says god says in himself that he's no respecter of persons which means if he wants healing for one person but doesn't want healing for another person then we've got some pages we've got to tear out of the Bible because that makes God a respecter of persons. Secondly, God never changes. So if God ever healed anybody, he's duty-bound to heal everybody. And that's why the Bible says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. He healed everybody that was sick to fulfill that verse of Scripture in Isaiah. He healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. And with his stripes we were healed. So again, we're back to the question, what was God's will? God's will was for Hezekiah to live out the full length of his days. That's his will for everybody. So why did Isaiah the prophet go and tell him he's going to die? Because based on the current circumstances that Hezekiah was in, If he didn't change course, if he didn't do anything differently than what he was doing already, then Hezekiah was not going to overcome this sickness, but instead he would die. And it seems to be some kind of infectious disease because Isaiah tells him to boil a lump of figs and put them on the the place on his skin. It doesn't call it leprosy, but it must be some kind of inflammation similar to that. Now, the lump of figs doesn't have healing properties in and of itself. It's more of an act of faith. To obey what the prophet told him to do. Well if it was the will of God for him to live. Why didn't God just do something to make that happen? See folks the story tells us that something changed. The story tells us that something specifically changed. That was necessary for Isaiah or for Hezekiah rather. To enter into and take advantage of God's perfect will. Well what changed? God sure didn't change. Isaiah didn't change. Hezekiah was the one that did the changing. So instead of looking at it like God changed his mind, which he never does, look at it this way. God sent Isaiah to show the Hezekiah that he was on the wrong track. And that if he continued further along that same line, then he wasn't going to survive this sickness and disease. I see the mercy of God in that, folks. Don't you? Here God sent the prophet specifically to spur, Isaac, uh, to spur Hezekiah into taking action. Now what was the action that he took? He relied on the things that he had obeyed God to do to show that his heart was right before God. He's not saying that he's righteous in and of himself. But he's laying claim to something that only the obedient would have access to. So he reminds God of his obedience. So God adds 15 years to his life. I believe that that's a work of the Holy Ghost that's necessary, just as necessary in our day as it was in his day, to reveal when we're on the wrong track reveal to us when we're not receiving of God's best and why the Holy Ghost will show you what changes to make he'll show you what adjustments need to be made so that we can walk in God's best so when Hezekiah changed things from his end now remember God gave authority to man here on the earth so God did not have authority Please hear me out on this. Listen carefully to the way that I'm saying this. If God gave man authority on the earth in the beginning when he created man, then there's no way for God to take that authority back. He gave the authority to man. Man still has the authority. So in Hezekiah's case, if anything's going to change, if anything's going to be different, if he's going to get different results than the the physical death that he's on track for, then he's the one that has to make the change. Why is he the one that had to make the change? Because man is the one that has authority. So when Isaiah tells him, this is what the Lord said, Hezekiah is the only one that can change it. But he did. He changed it. See, folks, the way that we use our authority has everything to do with what we're going to have. It has everything to do. What you say, what you determine based on God's Word is the way for you to take hold of what God has provided for us through the shed blood of Jesus. There was a situation that Brother Hagan used to tell about where he went to a, a certain church to have a series of meetings. He was there for a couple of weeks if I remember correctly. And the pastor, he had held uh, meetings for this pastor for a long time, many different occasions. And there was somebody, a couple in his church that Brother Hagin was acquainted with because they used to be in the ministry and really used to help them and help him in some of their crusades and so forth. And there was an incident where after one of the morning services, this couple that the Hagins were acquainted with went and took them to lunch. And the wife said something during the lunch to this effect. She said, Brother Hagin, you've got me all confused. He said, why? What are you talking about? She said, well, you said last night, read the scripture that says, he that hates his brother is a murderer. And then you casually made a comment or made a joke. That means mother-in-law too. And Brother Hagin said, well, yeah, I did. I said that. What's the problem? She said, I hate my mother-in-law. And Brother Hagin said, well, if you do, then that means you're a murderer. And then she started giving explanations. She said, my parents were pastors. I was born in the, in the, uh, the parsonage of the pastorate that they were involved with or taking over at the time. And Brother Hagin said, well, none of that matters. She gave a couple of other reasons. I've been to Bible school. I've been ordained in ministry myself. And Brother Hagin said, none of that changes the word. If you hate your mother-in-law, you're, you are a murderer. And so finally, after keeping her on the ropes for a little bit, he said, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to look me right in the eye, and I want you to say, I hate my mother-in-law. And at the time that you say that, look down on the inside of you and tell me what happens. So she looked him in the eye and said, I hate my mother-in-law. Brother Hagin said, what's going on in your spirit? She said, something down there is scratching me. And he said, well, of course, that's the spirit of God on the inside of you trying to impress upon you to walk in love which is the commandment of the new covenant the only commandment of the new covenant so she said what am i going to do and brother hagan said well the bible says the love of god is shed abroad in your heart at the new birth so you don't need love to you don't need more love for her for your mother-in-law you just need to start acting like you already love her so he said do what you would do if you did love your mother-in-law, because you really do. So some time went on. A couple of days went by. They invited Brother Hagen after one of the evening services to their house where they're having a fellowship and so forth. And she comes to Brother Hagen after the service while he's there in her home. And she said, Brother Hagen, thank you so much for getting me on the right track with my mother-in-law. She said, I don't hate them. They're good people. They've got quirks and idiosyncrasies like everybody else. But my mother-in-law is a wonderful person. She said, everything has changed for us. It's like a weight has been lifted. And so Brother Hagen rejoiced with her and was glad to hear it. Well, another couple of days went by, and their daughter apparently for some time had been uh, subject to seizures. I would guess that it was something or the only thing I can imagine is something like an epileptic seizure but this had been going on for a long time and apparently the doctors that had diagnosed her had told them, told the parents that this was the worst case of this condition they had ever seen. So it was quite serious. And so before an evening service Brother Hagen got a call from this lady in the place that we're, they were staying and said my daughter has gone into one of these preliminary attacks that these things normally happen this way before she goes into a real big attack. They used to call them grandma seizures. I don't know if that's even a term that anybody uses anymore or if it's applicable, but perhaps you'd understand from that illustration. Maybe that describes it for you. And so Brother Hagen said, Well, all right, we're just getting ready to leave for the service. We'll swing by your house on the way. So she, uh, Brother Hagen and Brother and Sister Hagen got in the car. And started driving to the church or driving to their home on the way to the church. And while he was driving in the car, the Lord spoke something. Brother Hagin said he asked if his wife heard it. I think the pastors were with him as well. And everybody said, we didn't hear anything. Well, Brother Hagin heard what the Lord spoke to him about. And here's what the Lord said. The Lord said, when you get there, don't pray for the child. Don't lay your hands on the child. But say to the mother... Mother, say to Satan, I'm walking in love. Take your hands off my child. Well, as I said, Brother Hagen asked, did anybody hear that? And nobody did. He said it seemed audible to him, but apparently or obviously it wasn't. So when they got there, Brother Hagin just acted out what the Lord said. They went into the room where this daughter was stretched out, having this preliminary attack. And Brother Hagin said, the Lord told me to tell you to say to Satan, take your hands off my child because I'm walking in love. Well, as soon as those words came out of his mouth, she turned and pointed to her daughter and said, Satan, take your hands off my daughter. I'm walking in love. Instantly, Brother Hagin said, as fast as you could snap your fingers, the seizure stopped and the daughter was fine. And only one time, as a side note, only one time in the next 30 years did that try to come back on her daughter And the mother did exactly the same thing and got exactly the same results. Now somebody might say, yeah, but I'm not walking in love. Well, neither was she until a couple of days before. She didn't have to earn her place, folks. She didn't have to earn her place with God. The blood of Jesus gave her a place. So here was a situation very similar to Hezekiah where the mother was able to stand in and act on behalf of the child. Something had to change to get different or better results. She's the one that did the changing. Jesus said, behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing, no thing shall by any means or in any way hurt you. Folks, when we come to understand the authority that we have and exercise that authority, utilize that authority, We can live days of heaven on the earth right here. Let's pray. Father, we bless your holy name. We thank you for offering your son Jesus for us to redeem us from spiritual death, poverty, and sickness. We thank you, Lord, that we have authority over all the works of the devil. Specifically, we have authority over sickness and disease. We know your will is healing in every case and for every person because sickness is the work of the devil. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we can always count on you. We thank you that when we hold on to the truth of your word, speak your word, and become doers of your word, We thank you, Father, that your word always comes to pass on our behalf. So when we take authority over sickness and disease, no matter what it looks like, no matter how we feel, we thank you, Father, by faith that healing is ours. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Say this after me. Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sickness, and with his stripes I am healed. Amen. God bless you, folks. Thanks for being with us.